silence. Let's be honest. Man, it's a great blessing sometimes, isn't it? Just to sit in silence. No cell phones, no conversation, no noise. However, silence is not always a good thing. I'm Dr. Levi Skipper, Evangelism Catalyst for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, and you're listening to No Sweat Evangelism, my podcast designed to help you make sharing your faith a priority. Bill Fay, author of Share Jesus Without Fear, was a guest speaker at our evangelism conference this year. He's a layman. He's got a heart for sharing Jesus Christ with others. But when it comes to silence in the church, he's not a fan. In fact, Bill Fay talks about how followers of Jesus are often walking in the sin of silence. Take a listen. I just want to share a story with you that's still tender on my heart. When I lived in Colorado, I worked as a volunteer with several police agencies, and because of that, I was taken into Columbine High School moments after the slaughter. There wasn't a bullet hole I didn't see, a bomb fragment I didn't step over, or a dead body that I didn't smell. And out of that horror story came a story about a young girl called Cassie, Cassie Bernal. Cassie was the one that was praying out loud when the perpetrators came in and said, Hey, anyone here believe in God? Cassie said yes, and they shot her once right in the face. But if you don't know anything about Cassie's history, several months prior to her conversion, Cassie was a practicing black magic witch. Her mom and dad nosing around her room one day found a letter where they were planning, she and a friend of hers, to murder their parents. They did the tough love thing, yanked her out of school, took her away from her bad friends. Only place Cassie could go on her own was youth group. It was there at that youth group where Cassie, for the first time, heard about the love and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They made that crucial decision to make Jesus her Lord and her Savior. And then Cassie wrote this note. We found this in her diary. This was written one month before her murder. Listen to the words of this little 15-year-old and ask yourself, could they be your words? Now I've given up on everything else. I found it to be the only way to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him to life again and to find out what it really means to suffer and die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. 15-year-old Cassie Bernal's facing impending death never once denied her faith in Jesus. But we're going to find out today that although you may not be facing death today, that we do deny Jesus. Not only by the way we live, but how we do not speak. Would you please stand with me as we're going to honor God from a reading from his word, and then we're going to be going to prayer. We're going to go into the Old Testament today. We're going to go into 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 29. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 29. I see some of you have not been in that part of your Bible in a while. You're using the spin technique. So if you get to, Sam, if you get to Samuel, you're almost there. If you get to Chronicles, you've spun too far. 2 Kings chapter 4 from the inerrant, inspired word of God. Elisha said to Gehesi, tuck the cloak into your belt and take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and he followed her. 
Gehisai went on ahead and he laid the staff on the boy's face. There was no sound or response. So Gehisai went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on the couch. He went in, shut the door, and the two of them prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and he lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away, walked back and forth in the room, then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times, opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehisai and said, Call the Shumanite, and he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she took her son, and she went out. Please join me in prayer. Father, when we're going to talk about sin, people are going to be very uncomfortable because it will be our sin. And Father, you hate sin. And you're going to ask us to stop it, to turn from it, to repent. But Father, we can't do that apart from your grace. So this morning and this afternoon, Lord, would you bring brokenness where you choose to bring it? Instill in all of us a fresh passion for people who are so lost. And Father, as always, first, please begin with me. And we ask this for the sake of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Why in the world did I pick such an unusual passage of Scripture? And what in the world does this passage of Scripture have to do with the word called evangelism? Let me take two minutes and set the historical context of what in the world was going on in this Scripture. You see, at one time, this Shumanite woman had offered some hospitality to some of God's people. And like many a woman, she wanted to have a child, but for whatever reason, she couldn't. But because of the hospitality she'd given to God's people, God gave her her deepest desire. That was the birth of a son. But as you know, we live in a fallen world. Tragedies around the next corner. The boy died. And she ran with what I believe is only the pain a mother would understand. She ran to Elisha, who was God's man, hoping somehow, some way, Elisha, God's man, would bring the dead child back to life. And you have the same responsibility. God wants you to deal with people who are dead and bring them back to life. Who are these dead people? Where are these dead people? You got them in your neighborhoods. You got them in your home. They're all over your churches. We have probably maybe some in the sanctuary this afternoon. We're talking about people. People who are spiritually dead. People without a born-again personal relationship with Jesus. God couldn't be clear. They're just dead. And I certainly understand that. Because in 1980, as you saw, I'm as spiritually dead as anybody you ever met. 1980, I owned the largest house of prostitution in this country. I'm involved in racketeering, bookmaking, gambling. I'm president and CEO of a multi-million dollar international corporation. I had everything. The world said, if you just get this stuff, you'd be fine. Well, I got all this stuff, and I wasn't fine. But I think of the servants, people like Elisha, people like Gehisai, people like you, who started to come into my life to tell me about this person called Jesus. And the first one I think of is my mom. I remember mom fighting a losing battle with cancer, but not far from mom was her Bible. And the countless numbers of times she said, I'm just praying for this lost kid. But all my mom ever saw was a son getting worse and worse. Then I think of a place called the Lost Valley Ranch, 
when you're living a completely insane lifestyle that I'm living, you have to go somewhere every now and then to get this little captured moment of imaginary peace. And I don't have a clue how I found this place other than the sovereign will of God. But it sits on about 25,000 acres of Colorado mountain country. And every time I got there, ah, oh, man, I felt great. But life goes on, you got to go home. I start to drive back down their dirt road. And every time I did, I got that sour burn in my stomach, those funny little tears in my eyes. And I kept saying, why am I having so much trouble leaving this place? One year, I figured it out. The whole ranch is loaded with what they call these born-again Christians. And I got so I can spot them. They had that little weird look in their eye. And if you agitate them enough, they'd burp out Bible verses at me. And none that I thought I needed. But it was Easter. Now, what do non-believers do on Easter? You go to church. So I ride my horse out on a meadow, and a young man said something to me I never forgot. This young man said there's a difference between happiness and inner peace. He said, happiness is like the high you get from the smell of the new car, the new dating relationship, getting a diploma. He said, doing drugs, getting sex, whatever. You get high. Some highs are higher than others. Some last longer than others. But he said, they always end, don't they? I thought, whoa, he's talking about my life. Achieving, getting, doing, being, and empty again. Then he switched. He said, but inner peace is different. When he said that, something just went click. I thought, if I don't know what it is, I don't have it. He defined it well. He said inner peace was being okay, no matter what the circumstances are in your life. I said, how do you get it? He said, only with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I reacted immediately. I cursed him to his face, got on my horse, and rode out of the meadow. But on and on, the servants kept coming. And if you were one of those servants who came into my life to tell me about Jesus, you would have been insulted, persecuted, and antagonized. But if you walked away from me believing that you failed, you believed the lie. Because I never forgot the name, the face, the words of the person who ever told me about Jesus. Did it make a difference that somebody like you was willing to come into the life of somebody as awful as me? Well, if you arrived in heaven today, you'd meet well over 10,000 people that I've just had the personal privilege to sit with on a one-on-one -on -one basis since March 4th, 1981 at 10 a.m. when I surrendered my life to Christ. And I've watched the power of the gospel change people's lives. But something I know with absolute certainty, as an evangelist, I have never led one single person to Jesus Christ. But folks, I've been around a bunch of times when the Holy Spirit's done it. Because I am free from worrying about causing a conversion. Success is sharing your faith. It's living your life out for Jesus. It has nothing to do with bringing anyone to the Lord. I'm not. You're not. Pastors, you're not. Responsible to cause the conversion in anyone's life. In fact, if you cause the conversion, they're still unsaved. People all the time say, why do you stay so excited all the time? Because I walk around in a constant state of anticipation wondering, what in the world God's going to do next in my life? When I lived in Denver, and nobody's ever from De Colorado, I said to this, I'm in a restaurant one time, I said to the server, where are you from? She said, Michigan. I said, how do you get from Michigan to Denver? 
Oh, she said, came to get married. Ooh, heard the sadness. I said, didn't happen? She said, no. I said, if you're interested, I have a solution for your pain. Oh, she said, can I bring a friend with me? I said, not a problem in the world. I'm bringing one too. Good for you. Met downtown, clinking glasses, business guys crawling all over the place. I saw two women with many tears give their heart and their life to Christ. And one looked at her watch. I said, I keep you too long. She said, no. She said, I got to go back to my office and tell everybody in my office they can get their sins forgiven just like they got mine forgiven. But you know what's happening in your churches? People like us are saying to people like her, hold it, young lady. You don't even own a Bible. Nobody's taught you to pray. And you haven't even been to the New Beginners class. Wait a minute. What about the woman at the well when Jesus forgave her sin? That lady didn't go walking to town. That one ran. So did this one. How'd they know? Easy. 20 minutes later, phone call. Woman in her office said, would you come on back down and meet with me? Poured her heart out. 13 months active in adultery. Last two months living away from her husband. Here's the good news about the forgiveness and restoration of Jesus. Receives it. Two days later, telephone call. It's her husband. He said, Bill, my wife has come home. He said, she asked me to forgive her. He said, I don't understand what's happened to her. Whatever happened, he said, I want it to happen to me. Now they sit in the front row of a church in Denver thanking God for a marriage would have been in a trash can. Now talk about pride. Two weeks later, telephone call. It's the adulterer. He wants to know how in the world the woman could have left him. Just be glad it's not you in the story. <laughs> so he came and he heard, but he chose not to believe. But he's not my problem. I had the privilege of God's process of telling him about Jesus. What he does with that is between he and my father. Folks, I had a great privilege in my life. Almost every weekend, I'm in a different corner of the world, I'm in a different culture. I'm in a different denomination. But no matter where I go throughout God's collective church, there's a collective deadness. Please do not confuse activity with spiritual life. I have never seen so much activity in churches. Potluck after potluck, program after program, activity after activity. And I go around asking one question. Who of you is still sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. Folks, there's some questions we've got to start asking folks. I mean, how many of us have been the means by which somebody came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we really believe when we read, unless a man is born again, he's damned? If people really believed that, I wouldn't ask the next question. Where's our urgency? What generation apart from this generation has ever seen more prophetic fulfillment of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ than you and I? Now, here comes the sin. Therefore, how do we and our churches remain so active in the sin of silence? And I think if I'm sitting where you are, my defense shield would go up and go, hey, hey, you know, pastors, they preach on the Great Commission. I guarantee you that. But let me say it differently, maybe, than somebody's ever said it to you before. Do you realize it's not going to be those two young men that slaughtered our children in Columbine High School that are going to stand before God in judgment first? 
It's not going to be your town liar, thief, fornicator, homosexual, drug dealer, terrorist. Who stands before God first is the household of faith. Make no mistake about it, brothers. You and I are going to have to give an account for every single thing we've ever done or not done, every word we've ever spoken or not spoken. And I'm in terror for us and our people because I think we're going to be humbled into the dirt itself because we've so pitifully failed to carry out God's great commission. Remember Peter the Apostle? Walking, talking with Jesus. And what did Peter do? He didn't do it once, he did it three times. He denied ever knowing Christ. I'll stake every penny in my pocket as I go around row after row to any of your churches and say, have you ever heard of Jesus? Even if they haven't found Christ in a born-again biblical sense, they won't pull what Peter pulled. But your churches have found a modern way to deny Jesus. They're denying him by their silence. There's only two kinds of persons in any of our churches. Those of us who talk about the lost and those of us who talk to the lost. My concern is never who they are when the message begins, but who they're going to choose to become by the end of the message. And I think you ought to ask God a question. Pastors, if he has commanded you to lead your people, did he equip you to do it? Do you realize any born-again believer, the Bible says the resurrection power the same power that took Christ off of the cross, out of the grave, it lives in you and it lives in me. What excuse are we going to give God now for presenting a silent church on Judgment Day? In this passage comes first warning. Elisha hears of a dead child. You know what he did? Sent the servant. Think about what everybody does in the church. If God wanted to call... The servant, he'd have called the servant. He wouldn't call Elijah to make an excuse. And people make excuses all the time. I'm busy. I'll do it later. Here's the favorite hiding place of them all. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Do you know they're 110% right? No one's got it. You can't find it. You can show me the command, the commission, the mandate, the encouragement. You cannot show me the gift. Period. Stop letting your folks hide behind that. It's sin. Look at how many people that God uses in a variety of ways. God doesn't need ability. He needs willingness. And he loves taking the weak, the shame, the strong, the things that are nothing to nullify those that think there's something so nobody's boasting before him because in this passage you see our people come to church but very few of them are experiencing the presence of God anymore they're into routine stand up, sit down I mean it's almost like liturgical stuff the only thing we don't genuflect something's haywire here the joy in the church is literally gone, folks. And I think I know why. Philemon verse 6 says, I pray that you're active sharing your faith so you have a full understanding of all the good things you have in Christ. When we quit doing what God has commanded us to do, 
oh, you can come for your Sunday fix, your little form of compartmentalized Christianity. They can sit under a well-prepared and prayed-over message by the pastor. They'll leave the building unaffected. And the worst crime of all is they won't affect the lives of one single person that they need to share with in the following week. Shame on them. Because in this passage comes last warning. Remember, Elijah sent the servant. Now watch the servant blow it. Servant comes back, said the child's asleep. No. Child's dead. We're doing the same thing. Somehow we've let our people believe that people are okay, that there must be some middle ground. There is none. If you haven't heard anything else all day, don't miss this. You tell me, as I go through what the Bible says, if there's middle ground. The Bible's clear. It says, either you're in a relationship with Christ or you're out. No middle. Either you're born again or you're not. No middle. Now it gets tougher. You're either the child of God or you're the child of Satan. They've got neighbors, you got neighbors that are children of Satan that have never heard the gospel from any of us. Shame on us, not shame on the neighbor. Because the Bible says if they're not the child of God, they're the enemy of God. They work with enemies of God. They take recreation with enemies of God. They go to school with enemies of God. And they don't want them very simple. Pastors, they don't care. Because you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. Where's middle? Saved or damned, no middle. Mercy or wrath, no middle. I think we've forgotten who and what we violate. All the time people say, oh, loving God isn't going to send somebody to hell. Bill, really? Do you realize right now the latest survey says that 25% of the Southern Baptist members no longer believe in a literal hell? What has happened to us? So there's, if you don't believe in hell, why warn anybody? All you do is go night-night. This is awful. You can be a Seventh-day Adventist and take soul sleep. Just hope you wake up in the right place. Folks, we've got to stop this. The Bible couldn't be clearer. When Jesus Christ got on that cross, and he took upon himself every stinking foul sin, every lousy, every thought, every word, every deed, not just you and me have committed, but the world. I can't even, my mind can't even wrap around that. That demonstrated his incredible love. We like to talk about that, but why don't we talk about his justice? Because what happened when that happened? Remember Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I counted among those who go down to the pit who you remember no more? Why are you so far from saving me? Folks, the perfect love relationship from eternity was passed and broken because of sin carried by a spotless Lamb of God. Somehow, our folks, maybe even us, have forgotten there's no exceptions. If an exception would have been made to the justice of God, it would have been Jesus. It won't be any of us. 
this is awful. Because when Jesus said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Do you remember that your Bible said God not took some, but all of his waves of wrath and heaped it on his own son, turned his back on him? You and I will never understand what that cost God. Why he would do that for the sake of us, I'll never come to grips with. Why he would do it is even more of a mystery to me. Because in this passage now, it's challenging your people that either, I'm telling people, clear the bell now. Because I've been in your churches for the last 30 years, and I didn't do it to you today out of respect for your office. But I was asked one question. How many here in the last year were able to take your Bible, turn the pages of Scripture, and show somebody how they could become born again? I have never been in a church where it's been over 15% in the last 22 years. You and I are going to stand before God and present our churches to him. I smiled when I said to a pastor the other day when eight out of 800 had shared their faith. And I said, I thought you told me you had a good church. He said, they mean well. I said, you've got to be kidding me. You sound like Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. He meant well. He's a good little boy if you just got to know him. No, he's not. People either got to quit saying they're born again or start sharing their faith. They cannot have it both ways. I told the pastor, I said, I love you, man, but I don't want to stand next to you on Judgment Day. Do you realize you and I are doubly accountable? I think we've forgotten that. You and I are going to have to explain this if we could even speak on Judgment Day. We are responsible Please don't tell me you have a small church. You have the church that God has given you. Did you ever stop and think that the size of your church is the way God is choosing to sanctify you in your life? You're going to get it from people. You're never going to skate through ministry without getting hammered. If Jonathan Edwards could preach for 22 years, and his own people turned on him, threw him out of the church, no moral failure, just tossed him. Spurgeon, you ever see where he was buried? Back of a warehouse, practically. On and on I could go. Why do we get surprised when they turn on us? The pastor before said it well. You preach the gospel, they're going to turn on you. I don't live in your location. I don't have your wonderful call. Do you realize as near as I can tell, about one out of every 350,000 men in the world are called by God to be an evangelical pastor. What an honor. 
what a chosen, incredible, he picked you and he picked me. It's an honor beyond any honor the world could ever give us. And along with that, he promised us pain. Look at the pastor here. Before he could use him, he beat him up. It's the way of the cross. I had a dream once about an ocean full of people drowning, screaming, yelling for help. Nobody to help them. One day in my dream, the big rock appeared and the people started to crawl up and pull themselves to safety on the rock. But when they got on the rock, what happened drove me almost nuts. They got busy. They got involved in rock life, rock gardens, rock jobs, rock music, and came to rock meetings like this. They spent time talking about all those people out in that ocean drowning, screaming, and yelling for help, but nobody's getting off the rock in the churches. Well, maybe a few did, if there's a couple hands always in every church that get raised, but the majority just sat in safety and comfort on a rock. I don't know if you ever try to yell in a dream, but it doesn't work in mine. What I kept trying to yell was, how can you forget so quickly? You were once in the sea. You see, the rock was the cross of Calvary. The voice that every one of them heard was the voice of Jesus. But he's not high up on the rock where it's safe. You're only going to find Jesus down by the ocean edge where the dead, the diseased, and the lost are. And he's calling for you, Pastor, and your church to come. The question is today, will you? Or will you allow your church to remain in the sin of silence? What an awesome message. You want to help at stepping out of silence into sharing Jesus? We've put out a new resource called No Sweat Evangelism. This is a way for you or a small group or your whole church to learn how to share Jesus. Visit nosweatevangelism.com. That's nosweatevangelism.com. Also, do us a favor. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. It really helps. This has been a production of the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. Special thanks to our producer, John Graham, and stay tuned, my Jesus-following friends. Another episode is on the horizon.